Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Hello, it's Dan Levitard. Welcome again to South Beach Sessions, done a little bit differently by popular demand because you guys really like hearing from John Skipper, who was the most powerful man in sports from his time as ESPN's president when he made more money for the company than at any time had been made for ESPN. And David Sampson obviously made at least $1 billion deal that we know about around here. So let's talk to David Sampson and John Skipper about all the stuff going on in sports business, including breaking news as we speak. Let's get started. Very much enjoy this time here with two titans of industry, the guys who have both, both of these people have made billion-dollar deals. So we are in a sports economic time that's a bit crazy. John Skipper, David Sampson, I will give the floor to you guys to talk about some of the interesting things here that are going on in sports. But I want to begin with sports economics specifically. These crazy salaries going to the Troy Aikmans and the streaming services competing for Kirk Herbstreet's. Is a color commentator worth, John Skipper, you worked at ESPN, $17, $18 million a year on a product that people are going to watch no matter who the color commentator is? I never saw a scintilla of evidence that the people in the booth changed the ratings uh, even by a smidgen. Uh, the race to hire people is mostly about internal pride, right? It is, we want to present a good game. We want the media to suggest we have a great booth uh, and the people who can do this very well are very rare. Um, may make a little difference around the advertising margins, right? If people are saying your show is great, but it doesn't matter with the ratings. So can you justify it by looking at a P&L and going if I hired Troy Aikman for $18 million rather than Jill Smith for $3 million. Am I going to see $15 million more? I think the answer is no, you won't. But that can't be the only decision you've made, John, running a company where you know you cannot justify it by itself. Yeah economically, right? So that yeah. goes in the category of, hey, that's a loser on its own, but as a collective network decision, having the best booth with the biggest name is actually something that I want to shoot for, right? Absolutely. Everybody in the sports business shows up at the sports Emmys and they're very proud when it is announced that their version of NASCAR or their version of Major League Baseball is the best. They're very proud. It probably is good for your brand and prestige. So yeah, David, I wasn't suggesting it's a foolish decision, just that it's not about math. 
I don't understand. So, I understand why Amazon is trying to get into this game. They've got all the money in the world. Get a name broadcaster. You signal to everybody that you're serious. The money doesn't matter. The part I was confused by, John, is why does ESPN have to do that? Is ESPN's product? I thought that ESPN was big enough that when they put Monday Night Football on, you tried to put Tony Kornheiser on that. You did put Tony Kornheiser on that. You were making a joke uh, of the entire proceedings. Well... It was my feeling, uh, and still is, that the networks still are doing the radio play-by-play on television. Uh, And if you watch the Manning cast, which I have, and I find highly entertaining, it feels to me like it makes it clear that you don't need somebody to tell you everything that you can see. It is interesting to have some commentary on it, to have some expertise. I thought with Tony, it'd be interesting to have some humor uh, on it and that we did not need play-by-play. Um, um, of course, I was in charge, so nobody would say, no, you can't do that. But there is such a thing as a pocket veto, as a workaround, as a he can't watch everything. So it was not particularly embraced. I've always regretted that I didn't insist in a more firm manner that Tony Kornheiser be made an integral part of the booth and that we get away from sort of old-fashioned radio play-by-play, but hard to do. David, you might have a point of view from a league perspective. Well, I think that you were ahead of your time a little bit, right? Because what you were doing was the Manning cast before there was a Manning cast, except you made it the primary cast. I'm not sure that ESPN or any network would have the Manning brothers sitting there just riffing during the course of a game without having an alternate booth that was giving you sort of the straight play-by-play. But with the advent of the smartphone and people able to follow a game, even that they're at and watching, following the play-by-play, who got the stats, who got the carry, what's happening in the game, that's why you're able to do the Nickelodeon broadcast as an example, where you're throwing slime. You're able to right. separate because there's so many different channel platforms. So, John, do you not think that you were just ahead of your time and that if you were making the decision on the booth right now, you wouldn't get pushback on Kornheiser, but he also wouldn't be the primary guy in the primary booth. He'd be in the Manning cast booth. He, he would be, though. I still would long to try to disrupt what happens in the main booth, right? Because the, the if you if you watch the Manning, the Manning cast is is entertaining. It's fun, and I did not miss at all some human being saying, "Gee, uh, the quarterback turns, hands the ball off, he goes for three. They'll be looking at a second and seven. Uh, oh, great! I, I can see that. Tell me something I can't see. But would you be willing to make that as the main booth? That's what I'm asking you, John. Well, easy for me to say yes right now. So I'm going to say yes right now. Well, no, but let's well, do it. Let, if you're in charge of ESPN right now, would you have hired Aikman? Would you be going after Joe Buck and Al Michaels? Uh, I would be trying very hard to convince the Manning brothers that they should be doing the main broadcast and that we don't have to do what everybody's always done. You could make the other you could make the other the alternative broadcast if anybody wants conventional play by play, they could. Uh, they could turn into a different channel. By the way, note that nobody does this. Everybody loves the Mannings. It's a great success. What percentage of the people watch the Manning cast instead of the main broadcast? De minimis. Yes, de minimis. It's de minimis just because of habit, right? 
People know the game is on one place, they turn it on. If you look at all the, and I did a lot of it, so I, I, I think it's smart to do. I think it can be clever. But if you look at all the, oh, we're doing the national championship game on eight different channels, you can watch it in eight different ways. 95% of the people still watch it in the conventional way. So I may be completely wrong. It may be that that's exactly what everybody wants. How would that go over, though? You are you know how arrogant the NFL is, John. You know how they steamroll everyone in negotiations. If you tried to go counterculture against a conservative NFL, wouldn't they tell you, no, we're not doing that? We don't care how rebellious you want to be. You're not allowed. We want what we want, which is the thing that we have is the known thing. Just put famous people on it and do it our way. Well, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think the NFL would find the Manning brothers to be particularly countercultural or unsuited. They are great representatives of the NFL. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I don't know. Again, I was trying to see whether David, did you ever think about this, David, when you were at the, when you were at the Marlins, did you kind of go, gee, I wish they did something different or was it highly satisfying what the, the broadcast? I actually had the point of view that I wanted to help come up with any way that would enable you to pay more for our rights fees. And if you needed more content on more of your different channels, I would be willing to allow our live feed to go on as many of your platforms as necessary in order for you to maximize your money in right. order to pay us more. And to the extent that you want to try, I had a hand in broadcasters. And that was my role, one of them, was to have input into the hiring and firing of play-by-play of -play and by analysts. And my criteria is that I needed some connectivity to the game, which is why having a former player as an analyst was a good idea, some connectivity to the past of your franchise right. or another franchise. But for the play-by-play, -play, you're looking for someone who can do baseball for dummies and look at a play because there's so much time during a game do baseball for the intelligentsia where the dummies won't know what the heck you're talking about. And so that sort of combination, John Madden to me was the number one example of it, where he could do drawings and give away the big turkey legs and do things that would appeal to people who don't know about football, but then he could diagram a play and show you what the offensive guard is doing while pulling on a first and 10. And that combination is pretty rare, I find. Very rare. Look, he's at the top of the pyramid, right? There's a uh... Almost no one like him. Barkley is a you know superior talent. He's never chosen to spend his time doing that, but you'd, you'd love to see him in a booth. But no, uh, John Madden uh, was the best at uh, color analyst that, that, that anybody's ever done. Can we talk about money with you, John? Because the 18 million that's being rumored for Troy Aikman, uh, when you're making decisions what to pay someone, when we had to pay players, we'd have agents walk in and say, listen, that guy just made 17 million a year. Our guy's better, so you have to pay him 18 million a year. And that number for Aikman is not just coming out of the air. Tony Romo reportedly gets 17 million from CBS, so Aikman wants more. At what point do you as a network say, Gnug, like that's enough. I do not believe that the juice is worth the squeeze. Are you willing to stop the escalation in salaries or do you just let it go? Well, ESPN never led the escalation in salaries. Um, and generally we let it go. I mean, while we tried to get people right, uh, whenever anybody came up, they always called us when the, you know, when uh, Joe Buck who's very talented came up or, and generally we could not, we were not willing to pay what the market 
would pay for the very top play by play and color analysts. We, we wouldn't do it. I, I don't know that ESPN will do it here. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This leads me to the segue. I believe uh, the information game is about to change. The gambling money is coming, and it's reported that Adam Schefter, the information guy, has already met with a gambling company. Now, a gambling company would obviously want their information guy to report whether someone's got an ankle sprain or any information. That information is valuable, and I believe these guys are all coming up this year, all of the information guys. Is ESPN going to stay in the information game, or are they going to get outbid by the gambling companies? Well, certainly... Somebody like Schefter is of great value and will, in this market, probably command close to a double-digit millions of dollars fee to keep him. But ESPN has to be in the news business, right? Has to be in the breaking news business. Among the reasons for you to continue to watch ESPN is Adrian Wojnarowski and Adam Schefter and the other big information guys they have. So, yeah, they're going to command salaries and they're going to be fine. Uh, like like all things, the guys at the top are going to do great. Uh, the guys at the bottom will continue to do okay. And the guys in the middle will get squeezed. That's happening on the field as well. And, and yeah. that's something that the union has a hard time with in baseball. And it's one of the biggest problems in the lockout in baseball is that everyone's so upset about the middle class not recognizing that baseball is simply a reflection of society where the middle class is being squozen and that's happening in the broadcast world but john what did you pay stephen a smith that contract or no no his new by the way uh when i was there stephen was among the very uh most highly compensated and deservedly so while i was there his new contract which had a pretty significant increase i think does put him into double digits i think he would be the first person at espn in double digits would you again no, Stephen A. Uh, Stephen A. draws an audience. You, you can make the financial, you can make easily make the financial case for that. Let's talk about a couple of other things away from broadcasting because you guys have a lot of expertise in a lot of areas. David, we were talking this morning about the deal and uh, the deadlines and the lockout, and you were saying there are these moments of heart-wrenching, heart-dropping, and also exhilarating deal-making moments on deadlines where you face some treachery. And tell uh, tell Skipper what we were talking about, because I'd like him to have a moment to think about one of these deals where he was a little scared because he was out over his skis. Well, I want to talk to you, John, not about necessarily being over your skis. I want to talk to you about the concept of deadlines and how you would use deadlines as a sword, not just as a shield. Deadlines are what happen when in baseball or in any deal you're doing on or off the field, there is a point after which the need or desire to do that same deal decreases, meaning you've passed the point. Therefore, my need for you has changed. Baseball set a deadline of February 28th that we have to have a deal by then or opening day will be postponed. 
and baseball, the owners thought the players would say, no, no, we're gonna do a deal because we're right at the edge of that deadline. The problem is, John, in your experience, when two parties are negotiating and they don't share the same deadline, how do you ever get to a deal? So that would be my first question to you, John. Do you have to communicate the deadline to the other side and have them agree with it? I did not have many negotiations where you had to deal with a deadline or whether it was a disconnect. We often had rights of first negotiation that ran out, but that didn't trouble me very much. My leverage didn't much change, right? Though I was often anxious not for it to go to market. So that would be a deadline. But most of ours didn't have to do with deadlines. Our deadline deals were the distribution deals, right? They were the scariest. You're talking about your heart palpitating. The deadline of, gee, if you don't do a deal with uh, Spectrum by midnight, they're going to take your signal down. Uh, we had those heart palpitations, but we had the leverage, right? The, when the signal goes down, nobody blames ESPN. Everybody blames the distributor. So we liked, we always set the deadlines up for when we had great product. Almost all of our deals ran out at the end of August, right in front of Labor Day and the start of college football, right in front of we were right at baseball postseason, in front of NFL, Monday night football coming up, college football, hockey, uh, basketball. So uh, the deadlines usually work to our advantage. With, with talent, there were no deadlines, right? The contracts were running out. We had a time to do it but but um my general experience was whoever paid the most money was going to get the right to get the talent so the, uh, in that business deadlines didn't matter you didn't have two adversaries like the players union and major league baseball commissioner uh where you know one is as a different kind of leverage than another on deadlines we didn't have that i just want to explain to the audience for a minute dan if that's okay what john was just saying that is so fascinating and so awesome he was saying that to exert maximum leverage on a company like spectrum or on a cable company to get the most money possible for him and his network he would charge them the most which means they had to charge you the consumer the people watching cable your cable bill goes up because john skipper is so smart at choosing the right time to have his channel off the cable network and people say that business is tough that is the exact definition of being a business assassin, having your network run out on Labor Day Eve. I love it, John. <laughs> the We never, in my tenure, uh, either as chief creative officer or president, we were never off the air, right? We, we were never off the air. We got every deal done. We did once or twice extend. Um, uh, Mr. Ergen at DISH is a very a good, tough negotiator. And, and, and we were willing to extend if we were making progress. If we weren't pro making progress, we weren't willing to extend. What do you guys regard when you think about it? Somebody who got away, a deal that got away that even thinking about it now hurts, where you you lost out on something that either one of you really wanted, and after it, you were punching yourself in the face a little bit because you're like, ah, I thought I had negotiated that one well. Let's start with you, David. You got something there where a, a, a regret, a deal regret? Yeah, I think in, in baseball, when we had an opportunity with ML Bam 
and there was a deal done to sell BAMTech and be a part of that deal with Disney. I, I know John probably has no idea what with what I'm talking about here, but uh, <laughs> it's that was an opportunity where if you held on a little more, it's uh, owners were just nervous about cashing in on something they didn't understand and we got taken advantage of because of that. And that's something that's very difficult for me to live with when the reason that I sell something too early is that I'm too scared to hold it because I'm too scared to understand what it is. That is terrifying to me, which is why you always have to know the asset better than someone else because it's your asset. So that is one that I look back at and say, wow, there's some serious money left on the table there. Well, well, I just want to make sure, clarify for the audience, David, uh, make sure I understand the point. Are you suggesting that we, which is the Walt Disney Company led by Kevin Mayer and me got a great deal when we bought MLB? Yes, I am. Okay. This, just want to make, just want to clarify. David, you didn't know the value that you had there? Did you not understand? Uh, what did you, uh, Major League Baseball's advanced media is exceptional. Like they, Major League Baseball did know what it was doing about the future of media. The board of ML BAM was octogenarian white guys. That was the board of the company. The, the irony of all is that this unbelievable tech company was being invented and was being grown and was driving into the new century and the people running it, I don't mean the Bob Omens of the world, I'm talking about from the ownership standpoint where these old white guys who would sit there in owners meetings doing ABC texting on their flip phone, right? Trying to text, I don't know if you, anybody knows what I'm talking about, but there's a flip phone where you text by having to hit two, three times to get to C. Do you know what that is, yes. Dan? How much, how much money did this cost you? The fact that these crypt keepers had no idea what Skipper was stealing from them. So Skipper's gonna say that he overpaid and that's why Skipper's oh, Skipper. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, here's the funny thing. Here, here's what's more interesting, uh, David, and you're saying it internally every negotiation there's no such thing as a single path of negotiation right i was nego uh, and by the way kevin did the heavy lifting kevin was doing the negotiation with bob um but with kevin and i were doing the negotiation internally to convince people that this was a reasonable thing to buy so we won that negotiation but it was tough the, in baseball, clearly, there was an ongoing negotiation, right? There were people who wanted to sell, people who didn't. So there's always sort of at least four negotiations going well, on. What was the sale price? What was the amount we're talking about? And what's the difference, you think, David, on money you left on the table because Skipper uh, bilked you and didn't pay too much? He's a cheater who took advantage of your crypt-keeping baseball owners who are fools and old people. John, if you're not willing to admit right here on this show that you didn't get an advantage that starts with a B, then I'm going to be disappointed. Hey, look, uh, I'm certainly not going to confirm any such thing. I will tell you that I believed at the time and I still believe that having that BAM technology provided Disney an extraordinary advantage. And if you look at what happened after Disney bought that, utilized that technology to launch Disney Plus, ESPN Plus. Uh, and if you look at what happened to the market cap, the market cap went up tens of billions of dollars. 
I don't quite remember what we paid, but we didn't pay tens of billions. It was single digit billions. David, do you remember what they paid? Do you remember the exact amount they paid? Is that a secret amount or can you tell no, us? No. What? It was a public, it was actually a public, it was a public deal. Disney's a public company. I'm just loving the fact that John, who's now running a, what will be another huge billion dollar company who has more experience than almost anyone you could ever have on a show is not willing to take the credit that I am giving him. It's so bizarre to me. He's saying, I didn't do the heavy lifting and I'm not sure at the time that it was not a under, an overpay. I hear you, but at the time you knew and Disney knew they were not buying that technology to run the back-end websites of, of leagues. They were doing it because they knew exactly what the future was. And if you think there's not billions of dollars in all these streaming platforms, we're talking about Amazon starting a platform and paying somebody $18 million to talk on it. It's going to be a digital platform. So your question, Dan, was what do I regret as a deal? That's my answer. What is the actual number of billions left on the table? That's the whole point. You don't know because it's gone. There's no way to revisit it. But John, I tip my cap. But you took advantage of the fact that you had owners. Bob was negotiated on behalf of owners who did not understand the asset they had. The uh, We understood the value would bring the Walt Disney Company. And uh, I think it was a very good piece of business. I'm very happy. What is the you deal? Know the deals? You want to know the deals I'm unhappy about? You've heard me say before, uh, the when we lost the World Cup rights, that was very painful particularly as I do not regard it as an above board process. I also regret that I could never get the NHL. Uh, they had left ESPN for NBC over a public dispute about their value. Something I always consider a mistake in a negotiation is doing any of it publicly. And because of the damage to the relationship between ESPN and NHL, I couldn't get that done. So I regretted that. I regretted, uh, David, I would have liked to have been in the postseason of baseball. Uh, and to their, to baseball's credit, they uh, they were quite loyal to the incumbents. I got a wild card game, but couldn't get any further. And um, I always regretted that. That's what I hoped I would have gotten done in the if in the next round of deals. John, there are reports that one of the things being negotiated with Major League Baseball between the owners and the players is expanded playoffs. And the value of expanded playoffs for the teams is the ability to get a broadcast deal. And right. so the players released that ESPN or another network would be willing to bid $100 million for a 14-team playoff expanded, but only $85 million for a 12-team expanded playoffs. What interested me with the math there is that if you look at the extra number of games with 14 versus 12, it's about two extra games, and that would mean about $7.5 million per game. I view the math as a little off. How important are extra rounds of playoffs to you when you are looking at negotiating with leagues to get their playoff rights? The, the, the playoff games are dramatically more valuable than the regular season games in any sport. So the more of them you can get, the better. So I know that sometimes fans talk about, oh, too many teams get in the playoffs. But if you're looking to maximize the amount of money you're going to get, um, one of the smartest things you can do is to do more playoff games. It's hard because you have a conflict, right, David, between the regular season and the and the um, and the playoffs. So you, baseball would be better off to play 120 games 
and put everybody in the playoffs, put everybody in the playoffs and play it down. Fans don't care as much anymore about, I, I remember the old days when I would look at the, the standings in the National League and the American League when I was a little kid, right? They were just two tables and two teams got in. Uh, uh, and I know there are people who still think that's a great thing and think that uh, less it should count more. The, the regular season should count for more. should be harder to get in the playoffs. If it's about money, more playoffs and less regular season games will get you more re- meteorites, but you do lose gate. Want to ask both of you, The Athletic. Since 2002, The Athletic is reporting that all four of the major U.S. sports leagues have performed better than the S&P 500 companies on the stock market, according to PitchBook. The return on MLB franchises was 669%, above the NFL's 558%, and exceeded only by the NBA's 1,057%. These are nearly foolproof businesses. I know because some of the owners are fooled. And this is proof that they can make money on a whole bunch of stuff. You tell me why those numbers are that high, David. I'm going to tell you why the numbers are wrong, first of all. And I'm not saying that it's not a good deal to own a team, but I'm saying that owners buy a team that there's as much of an ego premium. And I was explaining this on Nothing Personal episode recently, or maybe it was with you. I can't keep track, but people are not looking at teams and saying, oh, that's a, that's a six times multiple, six times earnings or five times revenue or four times EBITDA. That is not how professional teams are purchased. There are ego premiums involved because you are one of 30 or one of 32 people who can say that you own an NFL or a major league team. And that is a big value uh, driver of value. In terms of return, people have said about the Marlins, Jeffrey Loria bought the team. John, can you imagine what I'm about to tell you? People wrote, Jeffrey Loria bought the Marlins for $158.5 million, and he sold it for $1.2 billion. The return from $158.5 to $1.2 billion is 669%, which is greater than the return of the S&P. And I was trying to explain to people, that is not how you calculate your ROI. There's something called an enterprise value. $1.2 billion is not the check that was written to Jeffrey Lurie when he sold the team. There is debt, there are taxes as an example, but it is impossible for people to understand that. And it is the most bizarre, frustrating thing that I've come across, John. Yeah, it's, look, you made the correct point before, which is, you're buying something rare and it is much more like buying a work of art or an NFT now than it is buying a manufacturer of lug nuts, right? Then you're paying something that mathematically makes sense. I guess, by the way, there is a baseball team called the lug nuts, uh, isn't there? (laughs) I love Uh, the idea that we're still using lug nuts and widgets as the things that we sell when we have these conversations. (laughs) uh, But it's, but, but those, there, those, there owners, those owners that sold you the BAM network, they are selling lug nuts and widgets. That's why they gave it to you at billions under what it would be worth. That's how they made their money, <laughs> by selling widgets and lug nuts. Uh, well, uh, I guess that makes me a lug nut buyer. Um, but it's, you know, it's like, why do people buy basketball paintings now? They buy them because they're expe- they love them. It's have one, if you have one in your house when you walk in, there is no better status in, in the world right now than to have a great big uh, John Michael Basquiat painting and you paid $80 million for it. Is it worth $80 million? Well, yeah, because somebody else will pay 81 
or 180 in three years, and that's the same as a sports team. What did you guys make, before we get you both out of here, of the Russian sports sanctions? Uh, and it's suspended indefinitely by FIFA and UEFA. I love the idea. He just said, uh, John was very delicate with my negotiations on the World Cup were not above board. He dealt with one of the most corrupt, contaminated uh, negotiation situations that there could possibly be if FIFA is involved. And I wanted to get your ideas and thoughts on what's happening right now. In Russia, as it regards sports, all the way from the sanctions to Abramovich, whatever you guys got here, David, let's start with you on things you find most interesting from the sports realm on what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. I want to remind people about all the different companies who, after the insurrection on January 6th, said they were no longer going to donate money to any political candidate who in any way supported what happened on January 6th. And companies were running and jumping all over each other to hand out press releases and to put their CEOs out front and say, look, we are not participating in these packs or giving money to these candidates. And then a month, two, three, four months goes by and then boom, they are again giving money to those candidates because it is important to their business. Right now, it is one of the in things to do is to say that we are going to jump on the sanctions toward Russia because we don't like what Putin is doing to Ukraine. So FIFA and UEFA are saying they can't participate in the World Cup and we are gonna make it that way. But if that absolutely corrupt body thought for one second that having Russia involved would be beneficial to them financially this coming year, 2022 in Qatar. But the irony is that it's taking place in Qatar, by the way, which we can talk about at a later moment. But if they thought for one minute that those sanctions were going to be costly long term, I don't think they would be participating. But right now it is such a sensitive subject. They have to stand up and do it. But I don't think it will last, John. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not quite as um, cynical, I don't think. I was surprised that FIFA did anything. And you mentioned the irony that they did it in front of the uh, Qatar or Qatar World Cup. Um, and uh, the greater irony, of course, is they did this only uh, three years, three a little over three years after they had the World Cup in Russia. And Russia bought and paid for the World Cup. So, yeah, there is a certain a certain uh, hypocrisy at work here. I don't think it's a deeply held conviction. I do think it's a practical matter, though I will say that I do believe, and this is mostly about sports, I do think Putin has stepped in shit. I do think that this, uh, uh, you know, could be his Vietnam, could be his Af uh, another, Russia had the same Afghanistan problem we have invading a nation that does not want to be subject that is cantankerous that has brave people and courageous people uh is going to be a problem uh and i hope it is a problem it's a heinous thing that he has done and i am actually i'm going to try when i say i'm not david you and i probably have a, a similar level of cynicism overall i am hopeful that this is not quite as cynical and that this is going to create issues economic issues and will be, I hope it will be effective. I don't know that it will, but I hope it will be. Walk us through, Chelsea, as we speak, is up for sale. It's being reported as we speak that, uh, you know, 
one of, if not the signature franchise in sports for value, is now up for sale. Abramovich uh, reportedly took all of his assets eight days before the tanks rolled, took all of his assets and moved them. Your thoughts as the news breaks here as we talk on Chelsea being for sale. Is he being squozen would be my question, right? So there's a thought that there are sanctions and that he's wondering how it is because he's got, this is going to sound crazy to listeners, but he's got an expensive lifestyle and he knows what his cash flow is and what is required to run his various yachts and jets and homes and various things. And if that money goes away, you become Jordan Belfort, right? You have to start selling stuff because you can't afford to live the way you've lived. He has this asset in his back pocket that he can be monetized for an amount that can keep him living the way he wants to live despite any sanctions that may be coming his way or assets that are frozen or stuck, et cetera. So this is part of a redistribution of liquidity is what I would describe it. It's gonna be fascinating to watch who steps up, what type of conglomerate will be needed to hit the number that Abramovich will want to sell what is for sure the most prized asset to be sold in the longest I can remember. Yeah, it, it is to your point before, David, I think it is the case that uh, the club has $2 billion of debt. Uh, and I believe that debt goes to Mr. Obramovich. Um, so to your point, it may be the only way for him to maintain his lifestyle and recover his debt. The biggest issue with Chelsea is they play in a stadium which is not a modern stadium. It is in a neighborhood with no space to build another new stadium. So a prospective owner has to look at $2 billion worth, retiring $2 billion worth of debt, figuring out a way to, to build a new stadium in London. Difficult to do, it's also, but they have to do it. It's also being reported that the asking price is 4 billion pounds. 4 billion pounds for Chelsea. But I don't know, David, would you be surprised if somebody paid between three and four billion pounds, I wouldn't. Yeah, just let's do the math for people because that's not three to four billion dollars. Remember the conversion rate. So you're talking about four and a half to six billion US dollars for a franchise. It would be the equivalent of, let's say, the New York Yankees or ever put up for sale by the Steinbrenner family. But the fact is EPL franchises are worth more than MLB franchises or if the Cowboys, Jerry Jones, puts his team up for sale more than NFL franchises. There will be oligarchs, and, and I don't mean that Russian oligarchs, there will be people who will step up and write the check to own Chelsea because that becomes, as you would say, John, when you walk in the door and see a gorgeous Van Gogh or Picasso, if you can go to a cocktail party and say that you are the principal owner of Chelsea, that's pretty good. Gentlemen, a pleasure. I am telling the audience, if it's not already aware, that you will not hear an hour that's this informed on sports business economics with this kind of expertise anywhere else. We appreciate your time. We appreciate the insight. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, David. Nice to see you. Take care, John. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.